Listen, the world does not need another time management book. This is the most cluttered category of books in the world. Right. Okay. Uh, okay. Let, let's pause yeah. right there, real quick. Why is that? Because, we're, like, we're clearly trying to figure this thing out. Why is it such an issue that people are so obsessed with? Because I totally agree with you. That's a really good question. Because this is freaking hard. Well, hey there. If we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. And I'm so excited to share today's conversation with you because it's with someone that I met a couple years ago, and he's honestly become a friend and someone that I just really deeply respect and admire. Today's conversation is with Jordan Rayner. Now, Jordan kind of exemplifies the type of person we like to talk to on this podcast because, yes, he's an incredible communicator and he is really gifted at taking time-tested principles and communicating them in books and podcasts and content in a way that makes the complex simple. But in addition to being an exceptional communicator, he's also a practitioner, Uh, Jordan has real-world marketplace leadership experience. I think he would even call himself a serial entrepreneur and has gone through being the CEO of multiple different organizations, uh, has seen his organizations be acquired, and has operated as a leader who tries to inject their faith into the marketplace in multiple different arenas and multiple different spheres. And it's for that reason that I really wanted to talk to Jordan today because uh, he just released a new book called Redeeming Your Time. And uh, I just want to share with you, this book is so powerful because instead of just looking at the world's principles or culture's principles or every other book's principles for time management, Jordan did something really fascinating and really unique, something that I really haven't heard of anyone doing before. He said, okay, let's look at time management management through the lens of Jesus. And that's a pretty fascinating concept because we don't typically think of Jesus through the lens of time management. But when you actually start to think about it, even if you're not a person of faith, even if you're not a Christian, if you start to think about it, the guy was pretty productive. And I think that that's worth recognizing. He produced results. And the measure of that is the fact that we're still talking about his influence thousands of years removed from him walking the earth. And so that's what I wanted to get to in this conversation is some of the core concepts and principles that Jordan put into his newest book, Redeeming Your Time. But in order to get there, I wanted to first highlight a phrase that I heard Jordan say a couple years ago that has continued to stick with me. I'll never forget when he said it, and it's something that I've continued to reflect on in my own life and in the way I get to work with leaders in the marketplace every single day, because the phrase he used was the ministry of excellence. Actually, I wanted to name my last book, The Ministry of Excellence, and my publisher (laughs) hated it. Uh, So we went with Master One and said, yeah, so listen, I grew up in the church. Uh, It's going to become very clear in this conversation that I am an apprentice of Jesus Christ. And a lot of times in churchy worlds, we just use church jargon and can lose a lot of the meaning of words. And ministry... Uh, This really churchy word, when we see it in scripture, when we see it in the Bible, it really just means service. That's it, right? Mm -hmm. So you can be in ministry if you're a pastor or a missionary living in a mud hut 5,000 miles away from where you and I are sitting, Alex. Uh, But you can also be doing ministry when you're a CEO or when you're a marketing manager or when you're a janitor or a stay-at-home parent. Uh, And if we believe that our work is ministry and thus service, we should care deeply about the ministry of excellence, right? Because mediocrity is a failure of love, Mm. right? If we believe work is service of others, then anything short of the pursuit of excellence is a failure to love our neighbor as ourself. There's a great quote from the British novelist Dorothy Sayers. I'm going to butcher it, but she basically says, listen, we tell people in the church that what they need to do is not get drunk on the weekends and come to church on Sundays. But the very first demand that Christianity makes of us is that 
We make good tables. Jesus made good tables. Jesus spent 80% of his adult life before he was preaching as a carpenter. And I got to imagine those were the best tables uh, in all of Nazareth, <laughs> right? He yeah. served people through the ministry of excellence. We have to, too. Oh, I love that. And I love that you already referenced Dorothy Sayers because that was one of the things that I read in your book was one of her quotes that I was like, oh, that is so good. And I think it ties into this topic. She said something that you referenced in the book that alluded to the fact that Jesus had a, a sense of purpose like steel. And, and I think that that ties into kind of this idea of excellence and sustained excellence being rooted in a sense of why or a sense of purpose. So can you draw a little bit of that connection, especially for the believer of like, what is the why for doing excellent work? What is the driving purpose for bringing our full self to the work that we're doing, regardless of what that work is, Jordan? So good. Such a good question. Yeah, I think a lot of people, especially Christians, believe that their purpose in life is kind of non-existent. So sit back and wait until Jesus returns. Uh, yeah, this is just like totally antithetical to scripture. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, the apostle Paul says that we are saved by faith, not by works. So we're not saved by works. But then in Ephesians 2, 10, he says that the reason why we're saved, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works that the father prepared us in advance. And that word good works, it's the exact same word, a uh, Greek word that Jesus used when commanding his disciples to go do good works. It's a Greek word called ergozon. Uh, and it does not mean exclusively giving money to the poor and evangelism. Uh, according to my Bible's commentary, uh, it connotes, quote, work, task, and employment. Right? So the very purpose of our lives, the reason why we have been saved is to go out in the world and do great work, love our neighbors as ourselves through the ministry of excellence. That's the purpose. That's the why behind the ministry of excellence. Because in doing that, Jesus says that we will glorify the Father. He said they will see your good works and give glory to the Father. Right. So that's the why. And you alluded to um, Dorothy's amazing quote about Jesus. I love her description of Jesus. Jesus having a purpose harder than steel. Yeah. <laughs> I love that so much because that's the picture we see of Jesus in the gospels. You know, Jesus was crystal clear on his mission. He came to earth for 33 years to preach the gospel in word and in deed. And that allowed him to take the long list of things he could be doing and prioritize it down to the things that he should be doing in order to do the work the Father gave him to do. We got to do the same thing. Yeah, well, and I love I love that you go there because I feel like that ties in so much with what you're writing about in this new book, Redeeming Your Time, because I have never looked at the life of Jesus through the lens of him being a model of productivity. Like until <laughs> you open my eyes to that, I, I've never done that before. And then when you started like talking about that and writing about that, I was like, oh my gosh, that's so true. So explain why, if you're going to write a book on productivity, why yeah. you, Jordan Rayner said, okay, Jesus is the subject matter expert on this that I'm going yeah. to study and what we're going to learn from him. Listen, the world does not need another time management book. <laughs> this is the most cluttered category of books in the world, right? <laughs> okay, uh, okay. Let, let's pause yeah. right there real quick. Why yeah, is please. that? Because we're, like, we're clearly trying to figure this thing out. Why yeah. is it such an issue that people are so obsessed with? Because I totally agree let's with Let's go there. Let's go there. That's a really good question. Because this is freaking hard. Like, I, listen, I've read all the perennial sellers in this category. I've read 50-ish books on this topic over the course of my <laughs> career. And the one thing all of them share is that in the introductions of the books, the authors tell the reader that it's going to be easy to solve their time management problems. <laughs> That's a lie. It's a bold face lie. You know how I know? Because there's 60,000 time management books <laughs> yeah. on Amazon and we're all perennially struggling with this issue, right? And it's because we still work under the curse, under the fall, right? So why did I write this book? If this category is already so cluttered, because I had three big problems with books in this category. Number one, they act like this is easy. We all know it's not. So let's stop lying to each other about it. You know, number two, most books in this category are based on what I would call workspace productivity. 
right? The idea is, hey, uh, busy executive, you're feeling swamped, you're feeling stressed and overwhelmed, follow my system, do exercises X, Y, and Z, and then you will find peace. Well, as a Christian, I believe the God of the universe died for me and that I already have peace with God. I have the ultimate peace that I need in my life. So I don't do time management exercises to get peace. I do it in response to the peace of the gospel that is totally secure. And I just think that's a radically different foundation to build a book upon. And the last reason why I wrote this book is what you already alluded to, Alex. Christian or not, I would say it's very hard to argue with the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was the most productive person to ever walk the earth. Time Magazine has called him the most influential person of all time. And yet, I've never read a time management book that looked at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for what they are. They're not just sources of theology and ethics. They are biographies of how the most purposeful, present, and productive person ever walked. And so, listen, you know, the Gospels, of course, don't show Jesus with a to-do list or a calendar, but they do show him finding distractions at work and fighting for solitude and seeking to be busy without being hurried. Uh, and if we believe is the most productive person, we should look at how he dealt with those things, figure them out so that he could be wildly productive towards the ends of his father. Uh you kind of call out our distinction in the end there that I think would be worth diving in a little bit deeper to the difference between being productive and being busy or the difference between being productive and being hurried. Can you teach us a little bit on that, Jordan? This difference is everything. It's everything. John Ortberg once said that being busy is this outward condition, right? It's a condition of the body. It's when you have a lot of things to do. Being hurried is this inner condition of the soul, right? I think that's right. So for me, what this looks like practically, busyness is when I've got a lot of meetings on my calendar. Hurry is when I've scheduled those meetings back to back and I'm sprinting from one to the next and I have no time to even make eye contact with the other human beings in my life. Busy is when I got a lot of errands on a Saturday. Hurry is when I get pissed off because I chose lane three instead of lane four at the grocery store and I couldn't afford the 30 seconds that I lost, right? <laughs> Look at the Gospels. Look at the Gospels, dude. Jesus was crazy busy, right? One time he talked about his disciples said, hey, let's call it a day. We've been working for 12 hours and he's like, are you kidding me? No, we're not calling it a day. Another time, <laughs> his family said that he was, quote, out of his mind. They thought he was so busy. But Jesus was never busy in a way that made him frantic or anxious or angry and short with the other people in his life. I think that's the line between busy and hurried. So we should celebrate busyness in the church. We should celebrate busyness in life because we believe our life has purpose, right? Uh, but we've got to, in the words of Dallas Willard and John Mark Comer, my friend John Mark, ruthlessly eliminate all hurry from our lives. Yeah, I, I love that that quote. I just finished the book Soul Keeping, uh, which Great I'm book. sure you've read before. It's a, and and it's crazy how much that book references Dallas Willard. And then John Mark Comer wrote the book literally based on a, a Dallas Willard quote, ruthlessly eliminate yeah. hurry. What is it that you think, uh, like, what is it about that quote that you think resonates so much with people, especially today? Because it seems like this topic of hurry is something that we all love to talk about and discuss how we do. Yeah. I think it's because we are more hurried than ever before, to say the cliche of all cliches. Yeah. And I think we've all come to recognize that it does take a level of aggression to combat this and to be truly countercultural with this, right? Like mm. the solutions that we've tried for years aren't working. We've got to really aggressively go after this problem. And, you know, part of the reason why I wrote this book is I, I, I love John Mark. John Mark wrote a very generous endorsement of Redeeming Your Time. But I think what's lost in the title of that great book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, is this nuance of saying, hurry, yes, bad, let's kill it. But busyness is good. Well, we need to be celebrating busyness, especially as leaders who just feel this deep sense of purpose that our life and the things on our calendar matter. That's right. That's exactly right. And we see this modeled and exhibited in the life of Christ. So we got to celebrate busyness uh, while keeping hurry in its place. 
Yeah, that's so good because it's almost uh, oh, Zach, our COO, sent me a, a message the other day by Matt Chandler that we always talk about the practice of healthy growth. And he sent me this message. He was like, you need to listen about this, to this because this is all about the, the practice of healthy growth. And one of the things that Matt talks about is he says that culture essentially does judo with Christian concepts or Christ's mm. concepts mm. to use them for their purposes. And so one of the mm. things he talks about is he says, they'll take a Christian concept, they'll remove the Jesus from it, and yeah. then they'll present it as this new original thing that people are attracted to because it is related to truth. And I think we're seeing that happen with this idea of rest and self-care. Yeah. And in so many ways, uh, there are times where it almost seems like we've swung from one end of the pendulum, which is hustle culture, right? Like just grind it out. to now we're swinging the exact opposite way, which is self-care culture, which is like, oh, just sit on a beach, and just yeah. let let everything come to you and don't go out and do something. It seems like you are advocating for a different approach. Is that fair totally. to say? Totally. <laughs> Listen, and, and oh my gosh, I'm so glad you brought this up because I do think we're swinging the pendulum too far in the other direction. Look at God's ratio of work to rest. We, 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 we neglect the fact that in Genesis 1, before God tells us anything about him, before he tells us he is loving, or holy, or omnipotent, he tells us that he is a God who works, a God who creates, a God who is productive. In OPS, if you're somebody listening who doesn't consider yourself a follower of Christ, uh, I would encourage you to consider this. Christianity is the only religion that's ever claimed that God himself worked. It's mm. radical. Every other religion says that the gods created human beings to work and serve the gods. Only Christianity starts with a God who works to serve us. That's radical. He doesn't just work. He works hard. He works <laughs> six days and took one day off, right? Again, Jesus working 12-hour days was crazy busy. Paul, the Apostle Paul, all throughout his letters, he's basically bragging about how hard he works, right? Like scripture celebrates discipline and hard work because we believe there is still work to do to bring heaven to earth, right? That's why our work matters. So we should work hard, but rest is healthy too, right? We have got to learn that rest is counterintuitively one of the most productive things we could do both for our goals, but also for our own souls. And just reminding ourselves that even if we don't finish our to-do list, God doesn't need us to finish our to-do list. He can finish his work with or without us. So yeah, we got to work hard, but there is a place for rest and we need to celebrate that too. It's a tension that we have to hold. And I love the way you're talking about this because you've used the word soul now a couple times, and that is not a very tactical word, right? That whenever we talk about productivity, we're going to start with our soul. But I think it ties into what you were mentioning earlier, that it's like, man, if, if you don't have peace, I can't give you the tactics for finding peace. Like you have to, you have to internally find peace and then out of that, you express the tactics. So can you explain a little bit of the heart shift that has to occur for us to have the right attitude towards our work? So glad you brought this up. One of the most life-changing books I ever read was Getting Things Done by David Allen. Mm. Great book. It's 25 years old now. Uh, if you haven't read it, don't worry. I basically summarized it in chapter two of <laughs> your time. And David Allen, David Allen himself was like, yeah, you did a pretty good job. So I was pretty proud of that. But you no, know, like life-changing book. But in that book, uh, David Allen says, hey, listen, follow my system. And you're going to find, he calls it mind like water, right? This like peace that is totally secure. And listen, the GTD methodology has brought me a lot of peace, but it hasn't brought me mind like water. Right, Because nothing that humans can make can give us that deep soul level peace, right? I tell my kids every single night, I promise this will make sense in a second. Every single night when I put them to bed, I got uh, three girls, seven, five, and almost two. Last thing I tell them, I say, hey, girls, you know daddy loves you no matter how many bad things you do? They say, yeah. I was like, you know I also love you no matter how many good things you do? And they say, yeah. I was like, who else loves you like that? And they say, Jesus that's the peace that we need. We need to hear spoken over our lives. The God of the universe, if you can believe that the God of the universe died for you when you were his enemy, certainly you can accept the peace that comes with knowing he loves you regardless of how productive you are. That's what enables us to rest. But, but here's the deal, Alex. Paradoxically, 
It is also the thing that leads us to be ultimately ambitious. I would argue even more ambitious than people who don't have this piece because working to earn somebody's favor is exhausting, right? But when you're working in response to unconditional favor and you've got nothing to lose, that's intoxicating. That's what enables you to take the biggest swings because at the end of the day, you still have the father's love. Gosh, I love that. I I was reading something uh, recently and it was a completely secular article, but I think it supports this idea that you're talking about. It said that psychologically, human beings respond radically differently, whether it's a obligated struggle or voluntary struggle. Mm. And so if it's struggle that we feel obligated to do, like our mental disposition towards it is radically different than if we sign up for it. And it seems like what you're talking about is, man, if I know that I'm loved, regardless of whether I do good or bad, or regardless of how many things I check off the list, then my response to that is going to be, I'm going to volunteer to do great work because I'm that loved. And it seems like that's part of the difference. Is that, is that a correct connection? Alex, that's exactly it. First five years of my career. So I spent first 10 years of my career as a tech entrepreneur. First five of those years, dude, I did not understand this at all. I grew up in the church. I didn't get it. And I'll tell you what, looking back, and I think I even knew it when I was doing it. I was using my work as a means of proving to the world that I had value, right? I would have never used those words, but I was trying to prove to my parents that I was better than them. I was trying to prove to my peers that I was special, that my existence was justified. I was trying to hold myself up on a pedestal because I had not yet experienced the unconditional love of God that says, I'm special just because I'm an adopted child of God, Mm. right? But once I experienced, and I was ambitious the first five years of my career, don't get me wrong, right? But man, when circumstances were bad at work, it wasn't just me losing clients or whatever. I was losing my sense of self. Mm -hmm. But once I had that unconditional love, I was more ambitious before because I just wanted to make my heavenly father happy, right? Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't trying to earn something from him. I knew I couldn't earn any more of his favor, but I was more productive and more peaceful as I was more productive because I was secure in that love. What prompted that shift for you in your career and really in your life? Sold my first company, was in the process of building my second one, which actually ended up having a happy ending. But for a while there, it did not look like it was going to have a happy ending. We were running out of cash. We knew we had pivoted our business model too late. We couldn't raise another round of capital. And we were starting to seriously think about shutting the thing down. And as we were going through those through that process of making that decision, it was the only time in my life that I could say I was in a deep, deep, deep depression. Mm. Because I, the loss of the venture wasn't just the loss of the venture. It was a loss of Jordan's reputation as being a successful entrepreneur. And that I couldn't handle because that was my entire source of self-worth. That was it, right? So if I didn't have that, what did I have? Did you ever see the did you ever see the TV show um, The Queen's Gambit on Netflix? Uh, no, I haven't. I've heard – that's the chess one, correct? It's the chess one. It's about okay. this chess prodigy named Beth Harmon. She's in the elevator and one of her competitors is there and they're speaking in Russian and they don't think that she can understand them. And they basically say she can't afford to lose because she's an orphan. If she loses, what does she have? Right. Uh, that's how I felt. Right. That's how I felt when this was happening. And, and by the grace of God, I had some godly mentors in my life who just gave me some really gospel centric resources that helped me understand that the gospel isn't just my source of salvation. Right. And it's not just my fire suit so I can go to heaven when I die. The gospel of Jesus Christ is my functional salvation. Right. Reminding me that I'm good. At the end of the day, I'm good. I'm secure regardless of how productive I am, regardless of what my ventures achieve. And yeah, once I understood that, that just changed my life in radical ways. And now I can go out in the world and take even bigger swings, honestly, because of that security. And I love that you you use that phrase, bigger swings, because I know one of the things you talk about in the book is setting and chasing audacious goals, which sometimes I think that's one of the things that we can bag on with regard to all of this eliminating hurry and stuff like that. Yeah. It's like, no, there's, there's good in chasing big goals because that can result in big impact and big service. Yes. And yes. it seems like 
the Christ follower that knows their identity is sealed and and they are loved for who they are, not for what they do. It seems like that person should be able to be a way more aggressive risk taker, you know? No doubt. I'll give you a great example of this. Yeah. William Wilberforce in the 1700s, Wilberforce was elected to the British Parliament at the age of 21 and really just used Parliament to acquire power. There was no like real purpose to his work in Parliament. He just wanted to become bigger and better and wealthier and more powerful. And then at the age of 26, he converted to Christianity. And he almost left Parliament. He went to his friend, John Newton, who wrote uh, the hymn Amazing Grace. Mm. John Newton was a pastor. He said, John, I should drop out of Parliament now, right? And thank God for John Newton. He's like, you idiot. No, you don't <laughs> drop out of Parliament, right? You don't change your work just because you b- became a Christian. You change your relationship to your work. And so Wilberforce radically changed two things. Number one, he changed the object of his life and his work. He set a bi- the biggest, hairiest, audacious goal possible. He said, before I die, I want to abolish the slave trade throughout the British Empire, right? And he did it, 1807. <laughs> I think it was like days before he died in 1807. Uh, here's the other thing he changed. He radically changed how he managed his time. He understood that part of our response to the gospel of Jesus Christ is redeeming the time, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, buying up time, managing our time as wisely as we can because we believe we have been given these minutes for a purpose. Wilberforce was abolishing slavery. I don't know what yours is, listener, right? But we should be saying the biggest, hairiest, audacious goals in the world because at the end of the day, we got nothing to lose. So why not take big swings uh, with the days and years we have left? Mm. And I think associated with that comes kind of the word that we hear talked about a lot in this space, which is you need to operate with a sense of priority and you need to establish priorities for your day, your month, your quarter, your year, all of that. Uh, I'd love for you to teach on that topic of priority. And then what I really want to know is how do you seasonally define priorities or how do you advocate that people should seasonally define what their priorities are and what they've been given to steward? Yeah, good question. So there's so many tools to help us prioritize our to-do lists. I think a lot of people can get lost in the muddiness of all these different tools. Do I need a mission statement? Do I need a power? Whatever. So in Redeeming Your Time in my book, I, I, what I did was I sequenced these things. And I used the analogy of a metaphorical five-story building. So if you're sitting there, just picture a five-story hotel. The very top, the fifth floor And again, the the whole purpose of this building is to prioritize our to-do list. The top floor is your mission in life, right? Like why you exist. And I would argue this isn't in the category of things we get to define. If we believe that God created us, he gets to define the mission of our lives, which is simply his glory. Very broad, right? Which is why we got to go down to the fourth level of our metaphorical building and define our callings. If you're listening to this, You probably already know what your callings are in life, right? You're called to business or you're called to a specific business, whatever, right? A level down from there are our long-term goals, right? Goals that are going to be wildly inspiring to us over the next three, five, 10 years and prioritize our to-do list. The level down from there, level two of this five-story building, are quarterly goals. So I'm a big believer and not just setting New Year's resolutions coming up on the end of the year, but setting big hero audacious goals and defining what those look like measurably every quarter. I love Google's objectives and key results framework for this, OKRs. Then the first floor of the building is your tactical to-do list, your projects and actions that flow out of those quarterly goals. And then invisible to the person on the street is the basement of this building. Uh, It it doesn't even deserve to be called a floor. That's why I call it a five-story building. And that's where your posteriorities are, right? So if everything above ground are your priorities, right? Your posteriorities, uh, to borrow Peter Drucker's language, is your avoid-at-all-cost list. The stuff that you're not going to look at uh, until your priorities are accomplished. So for me, I'm constantly evaluating that stuff, but but really once a quarter, I go on a day-long retreat, Alex, to just think, pray, review journal entries from the last quarter, set those 
quarterly objectives and key results for my business and for my family. Uh, let that refine my projects and actions list, that first floor, and then lock everything else in the basement of my mind and my commitment tracking system. And that, that's what those posteriorities are. Yeah, I love that illustration. I'd love to take the elevator to floor three yeah, let's do it. and look specifically at your life and define for us a little bit how you warrant a goal is worth writing down. Like, how do you say, okay, that's not just something I want, that's something I feel called to, and that's something that I'm going to dedicate significant amounts of time and energy to, to such a degree that I'm willing to say no to other things. How does something make the audacious goal level? Yeah, it takes a lot of exploration, right? I I think Greg McEwen nailed this in essentialism, right? It's very hard to make good choices about what your essential thing is, or in this context, your big, hairy, audacious goal, unless you take the time to explore a lot of options. I'll go back to William Wilberforce. After Wilberforce came to faith in Christ, he didn't immediately say, you know what? I'm going to abolish the slave trade. He spent a year thinking, reading, talking to people. What's God up to in this world? What is wrong in the world that I feel called to fix? And it was only after a year's worth of exploration that he said, yeah, abolishing the slave trade. That's what I'm committing myself to. So for me, Man, I, I, I journal, not seriously, not rigorously, but throughout the quarter, throughout the year, I'll just jot down really brief notes to myself in Evernote. Like, hey, I felt this way today about this topic, whatever. And then when I'm going to set my quarterly goals, I go back and I review all those journal entries. I'm like, all right, what's the common theme here? Over the last 90 days, over the last year, what keeps popping up? Then I'm like, there's just this burning yes, this thing that I cannot let go of, right? Uh, so that's part of my process. This is it's so hard to make this linear though, right? This is so <laughs> different for everybody. But I think the common thread is just taking the time to explore, to think. And I would argue that it's impossible to do that unless we make time for quiet solitude and reflection, right? Mm. Uh, there's a reason why chapter four of my book about prioritizing your yeses comes after chapter three of the book, which is called Descent from the Kingdom of Noise, right? Mm. It's impossible for us to think clearly and discern the essential from the noise if our ears are constantly filled with noise, right? Like, yeah. it's just impossible. Okay, and that was another thing that I, I felt like I really wanted to get your perspective on is – I feel like every other day I see something pop up from your Instagram about a book that you're going through or highlighting or stuff like that. And that's, and you are clearly, and it's part of your job, you're absorbing content all the time, yes. right? And, yes. and you're, you're, it just seems like you're a consummate learner, right? And, and that's a really big deal for you. And that's so many of the people that we get to work with. And that, that's so much of what I love about my role too, is that I just, I learn all the time and, and everything is an opportunity to learn. One of the things that I've noticed is that we run the risk of, of becoming so inundated with content that we never actually have original thoughts for our time and our life and what God is telling us because we're so busy listening to other voices. So how do you monitor the content gauge on your life to make sure, okay, I, at the same time I'm reading and listening to all these podcasts and everything like that, I'm also taking time to listen to my heavenly father and pay attention to what he's telling me about my life. Man, such a good question. So you see my post once a week on Instagram about all these books I'm reading. Here's what you don't know. Books are the only medium I consume. Brilliant. I don't read any articles. I don't listen to any podcasts. I don't watch any information on TV like the news. I have zero news consumption, which we could talk about if you want. And, and part of the reason, there's a couple of reasons for this. Number one, I see my core craft is writing full-length nonfiction. So I want to get really good at that craft. That's all I read. That's all I consume. Number two, the beauty of books is that I would argue they're 10 times, 20 times more filtered than other forms of content. Here's what I mean by that. In order for a book to get into my hands, first, an author has to volunteer to spend 400 hours of their life writing it. An agent has to agree to represent that author and go sell it to a publisher. A publisher has to decide to dedicate 12 people's time to editing the book, 
publishing the book, marketing the book, publicizing the book. There are so many layers. And then even if the, you know, once the book sees the light of day, I got to hear about a book five times from other people, seven times from other people before I decide to read it. That's incredibly filtered. Compare that to an Instagram post where the, <laughs> literally the only filter is my thumb clicking send, right? It's crazy, right? Uh, and so I just decided a long time ago, yeah, I'm going to opt for filtered content because it's not just filtered for accuracy. It's filtered for relevancy, mm. right? A book, 20 people-ish have to decide that this message is worth sharing in the world before I even hear about it, right? So I don't know, man, that, that's been a game changer for me, just choosing filtered content. The other thing that's been a game changer, and I, I've loved seeing early readers of Redeeming Your Time do this. I, I just, about six years ago, stopped consuming the news 100% and just let my friends curate the news for me. Uh, which they do a great job of. I, I I hear about every single thing in my life that matters to my life and work, right? When Tim, I, I'm a huge Tim Keller fan. When Keller yeah. tweeted that he was diagnosed with cancer, eight of my friends texted me the news in 10 minutes. It's crazy. I hear about <laughs> pandemics. I hear about race riots. I'm a huge West Wing fan. So I hear about every West Wing reunion rumor, right? And I hear about it all without having to spend one minute on social media, one minute on a news website because my friend's bring the news to me that's been a game changer yeah i can imagine so you do not consume social media is that a medium that you do not consume either zero i i go on instagram five minutes a day to respond to dms and to post a piece of content but i don't consume any of it and i've actually here's the deal man uh maybe your listeners can resonate with this Instagram is the most addicting thing in the world. It's the most addicting thing in the world. Like I, I tried everything. It's scary I tried, how addicting it is. I tried screen time limits. Who are we kidding? This is a joke, right? I tried dragging Instagram to like a folder on the third screen of my <laughs> iPhone. It wasn't working. So I'll tell you what's been working for about a year now. I delete and reinstall Instagram every single day. Mm. Every single day. It's the biggest pain in the butt in the world. I have to like, Type in my crazy long password. That's the point, though. I have intentionally created a phenomenal amount of friction because I've decided Instagram adds some value to my life and to my work, right? But man, I put a lot of friction, a lot of roadblocks there because we need silence and solitude to think and be creative and listen to God's voice. And so many of us are just stuck in the kingdom of noise, man. That's right. What is the biggest thing that this shift towards, I'm only going to read nonfiction books and that's going to be my source of content. What's the biggest shift that you've noticed uh, that that's created in your perspective, in your heart, in your attitude, in your countenance and demeanor? Talk to me about the results of it. Just way more present, right? Mm -hmm. Like in the absence of social media and news services, I'm way more present and I'm a heck of a lot less anxious, right? Like I was a news junkie for years, for years, for years, for years. And um, yeah, when I stopped, I don't know, I just became a lot less anxious. And since then, I've discovered there's tons of good data out there that proves that the news makes us anxious. But we do it to ourselves. Like we are inflicting ourselves with anxiety, with pain, and the inability to be creative and listen to God's voice. It's crazy. <laughs> That's right. I saw someone, it's kind of ironic that I saw this on Facebook yesterday, but I saw it on Facebook because I don't know if you've seen this piece of news for your friends yet or not, but there's all this stuff coming out from a Facebook whistleblower that essentially she stole yeah, a bunch of this. documents and leaving and is sharing all this data. And he is basically saying, you you mean to tell me that Facebook is using our information for their selfish gain? And he's like, I'm shocked. <laughs> Breaking news. So shocking Breaking news. And it, it's like, well, we shouldn't be that shocked, it turns out. It turns out that's actually what we should expect. It's so easy to attack social media services. Yeah. Like, it's a little bit of a cop-out. Like, we got to take responsibility for the oh. fact that we do this stuff to ourselves, right? Like, yeah. we are our own worst enemy when it comes to focus and productivity. So yeah, like put social media in its place, but gosh, guys, there there's value in these services. Like I'm not saying social media has no value, right? I'm just saying asking if something's valuable is a dumb question, right? Like you can ask what's the value relative to the cost, 
right? That's how good leaders think, right? Uh, anyways, I digress. No, I, I don't think that's a digression at all. I think that's hugely powerful. And what I love about you, not everyone has to take your strategy, right? But, but I like your strategy a lot better than no strategy, right? And so the biggest thing that stands out about you is you said, what are my values? What is the associated cost of these things that I'm currently doing? And then you made a choice. And so what is the encouragement or the challenge that you would give to people to give them hopefully a sense of urgency around, I need to choose instead of letting Facebook or Instagram or CNN or whatever service choose for me how these things are driving my life? I'll say two things. Number one, ask yourself an honest question. Where do you have your most creative ideas? Or where do you just hear a stirring in your soul of like that has to be of the Holy Spirit. I'm willing to bet it's in the shower. You know why? Because <laughs> the last place on earth where there's no noise, right? That should tell you something. Number two, you might, you might think I'm a nut job and way too extreme about this. That's fine. Here's a much less extreme practice that I talk about in the book. If you're not willing to let your friends curate the, uh, the news for you, just stop swimming in infinity pools of content right? Infinity pools are Instagram stories and news websites that seamlessly scroll from one story to the next. Opt for finite pools of content, a daily news roundup, podcast or email newsletter, right? Uh, heaven forbid, a physical newspaper. Crazy idea. I know I sound like I'm 90. I promise I'm 35. But like the beauty of the newspaper, in the words of the New York Times masthead, is it's all the news that's fit to print. It has to fit in a box in these X number of pages, right? There's a lot of beauty to that in our culture that is increasingly being dominated by these infinity pools of content. That's so good. I mean, one of the things that I know to be true because we're in the podcast game is that the most valuable metric that we measure is attention. Right. And yeah. we know that that is the that is more more measurable and more helpful some ways than revenue is yeah. measuring people's attention. And we focus intentionally on we want to make sure we're stewarding that attention right and make sure that we're using that properly. And we're not just publishing five hour podcasts because we yeah. know it'll boost that attention metric. But I think sometimes that was something I wasn't aware of until I started recording podcasts. And now that I realize that it affects me as a consumer because I realize, man, these people, I would never give someone, one of these companies, a blank check. I would never do that. But I write them a blank check with my attention every day if I'm not intentional. And it seems like that's what you're talking about is it's being intentional with your attention. It's being, very well said. It's being intentional with your attention because we know that nonstop noise blocks our ability to think blocks our ability to be creative, blocks our ability to be at peace and less anxious, right? And I would argue, listen, let's come back to the core premise of this book, Redeeming Your Time. This is totally out of step with the example of Jesus of Nazareth. If you accept my premise that Jesus was the most productive person to ever walked the earth, you've got to look long and hard at how much time Jesus spent in solitude right? Mm. The number of times the gospels show him holding away in lonely places. Sometimes it, the, the word is used solitary places, staggering, staggering. And he only had 33 years on this earth. Man, if he needed silence and solitude to think, how much more do we? Yeah, no kidding. One of the other topics that I resonate with a lot from the book that I, I've been trying to practice more since I started this business is that idea of Sabbath. I saw something recently where it was an older pastor talking to a younger pastor, and he asked him uh, a question. He said, "Let me ask you a question have you Have you ever have you ever murdered someone?" And of course, the pastor's like, "No, I've never murdered someone." And and then he said, "Okay, have you ever cheated on your wife?" And the guy was like, "No, I've never cheated on my wife." And he said, "Okay, have you ever worked on Sunday?" Or have you ever worked on the Sabbath? And uh, and then he looked at him and he said, because it's on the same list. <laughs> and that was like the most powerful way I've ever seen that point made is put it in the context of murder. Uh, so one of the things I would love to hear from you is clearly this is a topic that God holds in extremely high esteem is this idea of one seventh of your week being not dedicated to work. Why do you think that that is, Jordan? I think because the God of the universe knows this is what's best for us, 
right? His commands are for our good and for human flourishing. He knows that Sabbath is counterintuitively one of the most productive things we can do for our goals and for our souls. And listen, this is not the place to debate whether or not Sabbath is still commanded. I'm not interested in going there, <laughs> right? But let's talk about the benefits. of Because listen, I, I grew up in the church. I always thought of Sabbath as this legalistic chore, this life-sucking day filled with things that I couldn't do, right? Now, I view Sabbath for what Jesus said it was, for man. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for us, right? Not us for the Sabbath. Sabbath is this day filled with life-giving things I get to do. And so for me, uh, yes, yeah, Sabbath honestly has become the most life-giving thing that me and my family do every single week. So yes, yeah, Sabbath is about ceasing, stopping labor, stopping productive talk, but it's more about what me and my family feast on, right? More time in the word, time with our church family, feasting on physical things. So quick, I'll give you kind of a quick overview of how we Sabbath, man. Starts with work. Saturday afternoon, we do all of our work for the week, do all of our laundry, do the dishes, load the dishwasher up, done. Uh, once we're done with everything productive, we light a candle, kind of visually uh, signifying this transition into a time of rest. And then we just feast on the best food in town. We go to some of our favorite takeout restaurant, uh, get takeout. We get crumble cookies, these like epic 800 calorie cookies from crumble. We devour those, right? And we should have a great time for 24 hours. Wake up the next morning, spend a little bit more time in the word than I usually do. My, my kids, it's the one day of week they get to watch a full length movie, which they love. <laughs> I make them a hot cup of coffee, which they just think is the coolest thing in the world. Yeah, man. And it's just a good day. We, we go to church, feast with our family, come back. Usually Sunday afternoons are pretty low key, right? We're just like playing in the pool, playing board games, but there's nothing we have to do. Sabbath is this island of get to in a sea of have to, right? And so that Sunday afternoon, man, that's everything. Just hang out with my kids. You know, uh, sometimes, honestly, Sabbath is as simple as a kiddie pool and a good beer. Uh, right and like that's it man. are you like, in the that, kiddie that's... pool or are they in the kiddie pool or that... <laughs> uh both and yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. well no, but it's uh it's become everything for us and you know as i've learned I, there's actually some decent anecdotal evidence that sabbath is productive for us which sounds crazy right but look at chick-fil-a right chick-fil-a <laughs> when they started out they were all, they remember this, they were all in malls. All the Chick-fil-A's were in malls and mall landlords hated Chick-fil-A because they're like, there's no way you could be closed once a week and outperform our other stores. Guess what? You know, who's clamoring for Chick-fil-A as a tenant today? Malls, because they're the most productive retailer by a long shot, by a long shot. I tell this other story in Redeeming Your Time about the gold rush of the 1800s. Everyone going out to California, going out West. There's this great little book. It was published in, I think, 1849. It's called The Emigrant's Guide to California. And it says that the people made it who made it out West quickest, 20 days sooner on average, were the people who observed the Sabbath and mm. rested one day out of seven. I love it. I love Isn't it. that amazing? And there's all this secular data now as well, talking about how one day of rest is helpful for your body and your mind. And and uh, and then just the idea of a cheat meal. I never thought about this until you talk about feasting, but it's like people are now doing cheat, me or cheat meals or cheat days, right? Where I can eat whatever they want. It's like, man, Jesus had this figured out over two years. He's had this figured out a long ago. time ago. He got this. Long time uh, ago. Okay, you said something that was really interesting to me. You said what Sabbath does for our souls and for our goals. Mm. I think that's great yeah. because it rhymes, uh, yeah. but I also think it's great because it's great. So, can you speak to what setting aside one seventh of your week does for your goals just as much as what it does for your souls? Yeah. So for my goals, it means I'm a heck of a lot more rested, more creative, right? Uh, when I get back to the office on Monday morning, right? There's lots of good data. There was a good study out of Stanford, right? That found that working any more than 55 hours a week is counterintuitively unproductive, right? So taking that one day off allows me to recharge. It oftentimes my best ideas on, during the week come on Sundays. Uh, frankly, sometimes when I'm sitting at church, I'm like scribbling down ideas because my <laughs> mind is clear of the pressure to be productive. I have no call coming up. I have no soccer practice that I have to get to. It's just a day for me to be 
to exist. And a lot of times that's when I have my best ideas. I think every title for a book I've ever had has come on a Sunday, right? (laughs) C.S. Lewis had his idea for screw tape letters on the Sabbath when he was sitting in church. He literally wrote it down, ran out of the church and, and went to go start writing screw tape letters. So it's productive towards my goals, but it's also productive for my soul because it's a way to remind myself that I have value, that I'm a child of God, even when I'm not being productive. It reminds me, God doesn't need me to be doing anything for him to love me. I could be loved, experience his love, experience the good gifts he's given me when I'm doing nothing productive. I could just enjoy being a child of his. I don't think we think enough about our status as co-heirs with Christ. Our All this language is all throughout the New Testament. We're a adopted children of the king. And we it's easy for us to understand that we're servants of God. And that's kind of exclusively how we think of ourselves. Oh, I'm doing this for you, God. I'm serving you. I'm doing great things for you in my work all week. But we're children. We're invited to pull up a table at the feast with King Jesus and just enjoy the good things he's given us. And Sabbath is one way to do that. Yeah. I've got a couple of tactical questions about this. What is the role of your phone and your email on Sundays? Uh, phone's off, 100%. Okay. Yeah. And I do a digital Sabbath every day. So I, I work upstairs in our house. When I come downstairs at 5 o'clock p.m. for about two and a half hours, I convert my cell phone essentially into a landline. I put it into our master bathroom. And the ringer's on, so VIPs in my life need to get a hold of me. They can get through the do not disturb, but it never goes off. Nobody needs me. I'm not that important, right? And uh, so, yeah, it's a digital Sabbath every single day. But on Sundays, it's off air on airplane mode for 24 hours. Okay. And then are you off email all day on Sunday as well? 100%. Okay. I'm when- off email from Friday afternoon until Monday afternoon. Awesome. I, that's awesome. When did you start practicing that, Jordan? I was practicing that when I was CEO of a company with 120 people and we were growing 50% a quarter. Mm. I, 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 we just way overinflate our importance in life. Here's what I found. If you're really clear on who your VIPs are that, that really need to be able to reach you at all times of the day and you give them ways to get through your blockades of do not disturb or not checking email outside those times, yeah, you can be at peace ignoring incoming messages for a few hours a day for a few days a week. I had this guy on my podcast, this guy named Ronnie Andrews, CEO of a public company, right? He's got investment bankers he's reporting to, whatever. He turns his phone off on airplane mode from Friday afternoon to Monday morning. I was like, you're insane. I was like, Ronnie, how many times have you missed something urgent? Zero times. Zero times, right? You're not, You're if you're listening to this, you're likely not busier than my friend Ronnie. You can afford to do this if you do it right, right? If you do it the right way, set expectations with the VIPs in your life. Uh, It's been one of the most game-changing habits of my life. Well, and it also sets a pretty remarkable example for the people that you lead too, because if you don't want the people you lead to be burnt out, stressed out, frazzled, frantic throughout the week, well, they're just following your lead, right? And so what does it look like for you to set that example of trust? So do you exit Sabbath on Sunday evening or do you exit Sabbath on Monday morning? Yeah, su- Sunday evening, because listen, I got young kids. We got to make lunches, backpacks, <laughs> uh, get face masks ready for school. So yeah, we, we, go, we go Saturday evening to Sunday evening. I love that. And what, because I think that also provides some freedom for people whenever we, that's actually one of the habits we work with impact-driven leaders on establishing whenever they enter into coaching now is we say, okay, what would it look like for you to set aside one, one seventh of your week, whether you're a believer or not? And it seems like we grow up with this belief that it has to be all day Sunday. Otherwise it doesn't, it doesn't work. And just the idea that it's like, no, do Saturday evening to Sunday evening. Some people are already doing that. They're just not giving themselves credit for it. And therefore they feel stressed. Totally. Whatever works for you, whatever works for you works, right? Like I I, I just, I, I don't think the God of the universe is this legalistic about this. Again, Jesus came, Mark chapter two, go read it. He, he agreed that the Pharisees had turned Sabbath into this life-sucking chore. That's he right. said, Sabbath is for you. It is a gift for 
you. And I think he's delighted when we delight in that gift whenever. That's right. What do you do on Sunday evening once you're done resting to prepare for the week ahead? Because so often it seems like as goes that specific time, so goes the rest of the week. So how do you prep for the week ahead? Yeah, so I do a daily review every weekday where I am planning out my time budget for the next day. I talk about this in detail in Redeeming Your Time. Uh, So Friday afternoon, I'm setting up my day for Monday, and then I don't look at email again until Monday afternoon. So Sunday night, I'm not doing any planning. I've already done the planning. So Sunday nights are productive, but not with regards to work, right? They're productive usually with things around the house, taking out the trash, getting the kids' lunches ready. And then Monday morning, I'm at my desk executing the plan that I designed on Friday afternoon. Mm, I love that. Well, Jordan, before we get to the final question, I just want everyone to know this conversation is just a sample of what he talks about in the book. And it's such a powerful approach to this topic of time, because so often I see that some of the people that spend the most time on this topic of time management also happen to be the most stressed people. And one of the things that I love about what you did in this book is it's truly a curation or a compilation of what you have read for so long and studied and you include your stories and advice, but then it's also so in alignment with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just appreciate that so much. It's a book that I trust. It's a book that I'm so excited to be able to reference moving forward. And I would tell y'all, you should have this book for yourselves and you should also have this book for your team. So we're going to put the link to that in the show notes. Before we get to the final question, tell them about where they can follow you and anything else you want to share about the book, Jordan. And I know you nailed it. I appreciate the kind words. If you're still on the fence, just go read the reviews. I've never seen better reviews on a book before. Congratulations. That's amazing. You must be so excited Uh, about that. No, I mean, that's the whole point. You want people to say, I've tried 10 different books and this is the one that changed my life. That's what you want to hear over and over (laughs) again. So you can find everything from me, including a ton of free content. If you've resonated with this content today at jordanrainer.com, J-O-R-D-A-N-R-A-Y-N-O-R.com. Awesome. Well, Jordan, uh, thank you so much for your time today. Final question for you is if someone has tried this type of stuff a lot, right? And they uh, would resonate with the idea of like, I've read every time management book in the book, right? Like there's, there's so many things that I've tried. And every single time I find myself back stuck in the same rut of being distracted, of being overloaded, and not having a sense of priority and kind of feeling like I'm running on this hamster wheel. What is the challenge and the encouragement that you would give to that person before we go today? Yeah, here's my encouragement. You know, number one, I've heard that story a lot from early readers of Redeem Your Time. I'm really thrilled to see that those people say, this one finally solved my problems. But I'll also say this, nobody said this has solved all my problems. And if that's what you're expecting from me or any other book, you're going to be disappointed, right? The only solution ultimately to this feeling of being swamped is Jesus Christ, right? Luke chapter eight. I love that Luke uses this word swamped. He's talking about the disciples on the boat with Jesus and the storm comes and there's all these winds and waves and and, and it says that the boat was being swamped and they were overwhelmed and the disciples solution to being swamped by the wind and waves is the exact same solution to our being swamped by our schedules and to-do lists. It's the God-man sleeping in the boat. It's Jesus Christ who assures you that you are good regardless of how productive you are, regardless of how well uh, you can implement these practices. You're loved by the God of the universe. Mm. Well, Jordan, I so appreciate your message, but I think more than that, I I appreciate your example and the way you live in alignment with this message. So I'm so excited for people to get this book in their hands. Thank you so much for your time and investment today. Yeah, thank you, Alex. I'm so grateful to Jordan for his investment, for his energy, and for his perspective. And I'll tell you, this book, Redeeming Your Time, 
uh, it really is unique in that it's principally so sound. Uh, Jordan does his homework, let's just put it that way. And uh, he really, really ensures that the concepts that he's teaching on and communicating are based on truth. But then even beyond just being principally sound, it's outrageously practical. Jordan really does practice and act upon what he talks about and what he teaches. And it's almost like you can tell when you're reading a book that's written by someone who does the thing they're talking about. And that is certainly the case with Redeeming Your Time. So I would recommend it to anyone that's focused on being more productive and managing their time effectively. We're going to put the link to the book that's in the show notes. Hey, real quick, before we close out the podcast, most of you know, we send out an email every single Wednesday called Worth It Wednesday. That's because much related to the content of this conversation, most email isn't worth it. Specifically, it's not worth your time. And so we set out to say, if we're going to send a weekly email, it better be worth it. So every Wednesday, we send a principle worth learning, a question worth answering, and a recommendation worth taking. If you want to get on that list and join that growing community of impact-driven leaders, we'll put the link to Worth It Wednesday in the show notes of this episode. Y'all, we're grateful for you. We're rooting for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.